The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 10 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, The grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, we'll be reading through verse 25 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. One of the things you'll want to know about this portion of God's word is it is essentially an introduction to the next five chapters, but in particular it's an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which we receive in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's account of the gospel. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. The word of our God. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Here endeth our new covenant reading. Please keep your place here as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Every week we pray like this. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Jesus taught us to pray like that. But what exactly are you asking for when you pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Uh, I suspect that for many Christians, they're thinking about the second coming. It's not wrong, of course, to pray for Christ to come again. Um, If you turn to the book of Revelation, at the very end of the book of Revelation, Jesus tells us, surely I am coming soon. And the prayerful response is this, amen, come Lord Jesus. So that's an appropriate thing to pray for. But in the original context, that is not what Jesus is teaching us to be praying about. See, Jesus is praying about the advances of his kingdom in this present age. He's not asking us to pray about the then and there. He's asking us to pray, calling us to pray, about the here and now. That his reign, his kingdom would advance right now, this week, in this very present age. We are in fact praying that the perfect reign of Almighty God would be increasingly manifested in our own lives, in our schools and in our workplaces, in our communities. And we are praying that this would happen, at least in part, this very week. But what does that look like? That's actually a very helpful question to ask. You know, we can pray in the abstract, what would it look like when God answers this prayer so that his kingdom more and more is coming in our own lives, in our communities, our schools, and so on. Well, the next five chapters of Matthew give us the answer to that question. This morning's passage is simply an introduction to those next five chapters. In particular, as I mentioned, it's an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which makes up chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's account of the Gospel. We are going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, Jesus advances God's kingdom by discipling God's people. Second, Jesus advances God's kingdom by reversing the curse of Adam's fall. Third, Jesus advances God's kingdom by sending the message out. And fourth, Jesus advances God's kingdom by drawing the people in. Let me give those to you once again, as that will structure the way I'm going to be teaching this passage to you this morning. First, Jesus advances God's kingdom by discipling God's people. Second, Jesus advances God's kingdom by reversing the curse of Adam's fall. Third, Jesus advances God's kingdom by sending the message out And fourth, Jesus advances God's kingdom by drawing the people in. We begin with Jesus advancing God's kingdom by discipling the people of God. Look at verse 23 with me. Verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So our Lord's doing an itinerant ministry. He's going throughout Galilee, where there were about 300,000 people living. And they were living in just a little bit more than 200 villages. And that, of course, means that Jesus didn't literally go and preach in every single town. But what would have happened is his fame spread, 
is that as Jesus went to one town, people from the surrounding area would flock to hear him teach. We see that throughout um, the synoptic gospel accounts, right? His fame spreads and people come. They want to hear what he is saying. Verse 23 tells us that Jesus was doing three things on this mission. He was teaching in their synagogues. He was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Teaching, preaching, healing. Let's take those in order. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. I've titled this section that Jesus advances the kingdom of God by discipling God's people. I want you to see that this is what Jesus is doing in verse 23, but I also want you to see that this is what Jesus is doing right now in the 21st century. Jesus is advancing God's kingdom by discipling God's people. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, the very first people we ought to be thinking about in terms of discipleship is ourselves. I need to be discipled. And then collectively, us, we need to be discipled. Uh, Sometimes critics want to dismiss a speaker by saying, you know, he's preaching to the choir. Well, it turns out that when the choir is the people of God, that is us, we very much need preaching to. We need to be taught. Now, not all subjects work that way. Uh, When I was a much younger man, I had pretty much mastered high school algebra. I was going to get 100 on every test. That was easy. Uh, Today, even in my slightly older years, um, I have a pretty good command of aspects of Greek grammar. And if you pick the most basic aspects of it, like uh, the present active indicative verb system, I pretty much have it mastered. What I want you to understand is the school of faith isn't like that. None of us ever comes to mastery of the school of faith on this side of Christ's second coming. Remember what God is doing in your life. The Holy Spirit is at work conforming you to the likeness of Christ. It's an extraordinary thing. And therefore, when we look at Christ and we look at ourselves, we always realize, wow, there's a big gap there. There's a lot further I need to go. And so when I think about the Great Commission where God calls us to disciple the nations by teaching them to obey everything that Jesus taught us, the very first person I need to apply that to is myself, And then by extension, the rest of the people of God, whether they're people in my family or people in our church, and so on. And that's what Jesus is engaging in. When we think about making disciples, we need to include ourselves at the top of that list. Now, thankfully, this is not a task that we need to accomplish as isolated individuals. We have the privilege of helping each other in this task. My point is simply that um, God is not calling us simply to make disciples out there in the world by sending missionaries to other strange countries. He's calling us to make disciples in here, in his church. Here's one of the surprising things you ought to think about when you consider Jesus ushering in the kingdom of God and beginning its advance. Jesus does not begin to advance the kingdom of God by seizing key military outposts. He, He doesn't do it by taking over the primary news media or the political authorities or the Supreme Courts throughout the land. 
Christ's primary method of advancing the kingdom of God in this present age is by teaching ordinary people to trust and obey him. Right? That's us. It's also everyone else we're going to minister to. That is, Christ's plan starts with discipling the household of God. Please keep in mind that the New Testament local church is essentially modeled on the synagogue. In fact, that word synagogue, the word church, the word assembly, right, that we use also with the church, uh, they all have basically the same idea. It talks about God's people being gathered together to worship him. And the central part of biblical worship is the reading, preaching, and teaching of God's word. Although I did slip something in there, you might have noticed I'm talking about preaching and teaching as though they're almost the same thing. There is a distinction, but in Matthew's gospel, that distinction is not that sharp. Uh, For one thing, all preaching, if it's to be biblical preaching, necessarily involves teaching, right? The teaching of God's word. What you'll discover, though, if you pay close attention to the gospel of Matthew, is only three groups of people in the entire gospel are ever described as preaching, whereas many other people are described as teaching. John the Baptist, Jesus himself, and his disciples after he commissions them and sends them out. And that suggests that preaching, in addition to being teaching, contains the idea of authority, of someone who is speaking God's message on behalf of God in God's authority. Of course, that makes it clear why it's so difficult for us to see Matthew making distinctions between Jesus' teaching and Jesus' preaching. Um, Jesus, after all, Every time he opens his mouth, speaks with the absolute authority, not simply of God, but as God come in the flesh. So all of Jesus' teaching carries that authority, and it's hard to make that distinction, but it's one that we might want to make in other contexts. There is perhaps a second distinction in Matthew, in that preaching or proclamation is frequently tied up with proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. What exactly is meant by that expression, the gospel of the kingdom of God? Now, I don't mean to insult you, but I want to remind you all, right off the bat, that gospel means good news. And it turns out that people sometimes forget that when they're reading or listening to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has suggested that the Sermon on the Mount, in many people's imaginations, has this purpose, to create the greatest amount of guilt in the fewest number of chapters. And honestly, I know from my experience there are Christians who read the Sermon on the Mount that way. But I want you to realize that is not what Jesus is doing. Remember, this is the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. What's he doing? He's proclaiming the good news, not the bad news, the good news of the kingdom of God. Of course, when you turn over to the next page and begin the Sermon on the Mount proper, it does not begin, whoa, 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 to these people. It begins with the Beatitudes, where the Messiah pronounces God's blessings upon God's people. So please do remember that the gospel of the kingdom of God is, in fact, good news meant to encourage you and to build you up, not to send you off in grief over your sin. Although that's part of it. That will happen as well. But that is not Christ's primary purpose. But what about that second part of that, the kingdom of God. What do we mean when we say, or more importantly, what does Matthew mean when he says the kingdom of God? 
Uh, one scholar, R.T. Um, France, has pointed out that kingdom here is actually a verbal noun. That is, it's a mistake to think of this as a static sort of thing. Kingdom really means the rule or the reign of God. It's dynamic in its orientation. So think about taking a car ride up to New Hampshire, which is beautiful. Come to my home state, it's beautiful. But as you drive up 93, you come to a sign that says, Welcome to New Hampshire. Because New Hampshire has a clear border on the south of Massachusetts and in the north with Canada. It has these physical limits. Please don't think of the kingdom of God like that. It's not like you pass through some door or you pass over some line. You're moving from the world into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a dynamic manifestation of the reign of God in the lives of his people. Right? So it's how you live. And therefore, it turns out that you are not fully in, in one sense. You are fully in in your position. God has brought you in permanently as a member of his family. Uh, but if you look at your life, you realize there are aspects of your life that do not manifest Christ's perfect rule. We also can see how this works in the original first century context. For first century Jews... There were signs all around them which suggested that God was not, in fact, reigning, at least reigning openly. I'm not saying they denied the sovereignty of God, but that God was not, in fact, reigning in Israel. They were, after all, under the thumb of a pagan Roman Empire. Uh, The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, were just obviously corrupt. There were all kinds of problems with sin and suffering. And you're like, this is not what God's reign looks like. But faithful Jews also realized that one day it would be different. I mean, think of Martha. Remember when Lazarus dies, and Jesus comes, and he's engaging with Martha about the resurrection? And Martha says, yes, Lord, I know that at the last day, my brother will rise again. Right? God will raise him. It will be different one day. And the startling thing that Jesus is doing is saying, That's happening right now. Not at the end of history. The kingdom of God, the reign of God is crashing into the middle of history. Right? God's future plan for the world is arriving in me. What a dramatic change of affairs that would be. God's future plans for his world were breaking into the present, most dramatically, a little bit later, with Christ's own resurrection from the dead, Not at the end of history, as Martha supposed for her brother, but in the very middle of history. What does the ushering in of the kingdom of God look like for us? Well, Jesus will symbolically do a lot of things. He symbolically judges, sometimes we say cleanses the temple, that's fine. Um, Jesus will do things like cast out a demon called legion. Uh, You shouldn't miss the fact that legion there connects with the Roman legions that the Jews were so afraid of. But it was casting out not simply the Roman armies, but the dark forces behind them, making clear that Jesus had come to conquer all of his and all of our enemies. Jesus came to liberate us from the spiritual powers of darkness that lie behind the Roman Empire and all the wicked empires of this world. Nevertheless, Christ's primary plan for advancing his kingdom in this present age focuses upon teaching ordinary people 
to obey everything that he taught. And this starts with the household of God. Let me give you a practical application. Please don't imagine that the Great Commission is primarily about us sending missionaries to places far away. You know, it's what we do. We send people to Mongolia. Or we send people to Uganda. Uh, the big aspect of God, what God is doing in discipling the nation starts with the household of God itself. The Great Commission is very much about us gathering together for corporate worship and Bible study. It is about you reading God's word on your own and asking the Holy Spirit to help you put it into practice. It is about diligently teaching God's ways to your children, talking of them when you are sitting and when you are walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. It's part of our ordinary course of being faithful Christians. For Jesus advances God's kingdom by discipling God's people, and he is calling all of us to take part in that task. This brings us to the fact that Jesus was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You'll notice that every is repeated there. I I think that's important because it's making clear, but Jesus didn't come along and by God's grace simply help one or two people. It's showing a comprehensive authority and power over those things that afflict us in this world. Verse 24 puts it like this. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Now I have titled this section... Jesus advances his kingdom by reversing the curse of Adam's fall. See, Christ's ministry is not restricted to teaching. He has a ministry both of word and also of deed. Now, here's a distinction I hope you'll find helpful. Jesus does not come simply to offer forgiveness of sins. Jesus comes to conquer sin, to put it away including all its consequences, in our lives. Right? You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He comes so that ultimately we will be delivered from the guilt, power, presence, and consequences of our sins. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, sin has poisoned God's creation and God's people In many ways. Some people suffer from disease or are afflicted with pain. Others are demon-possessed, struck with seizures or paralyzed. It is not as though there are no distinctions between these various kinds of maladies. There clearly are, and the ancient world knew about purely medicinal cures. Matthew, however, brings these different troubles together under one theological category. There are afflictions, these are afflictions in the people that the reign of heaven in Jesus has come to remove. Right? See, Matthew is grouping all these things that we suffer about as struggles in this world physically and also spiritually, including demon possession. He lumps them together and says, the reign of Jesus is reversing that. The salvation that Jesus brings encompasses all of human need 
That is the human need that finds its origin in sin and in Satan. Here's the problem for us. The consequences of sin are so pervasive in this world that we come to think of them as normal, the way the world is simply by its very nature. And Jesus is reminding us through this passage that that's not true, right? He's also reminding us he's come to remove and conquer sin. As we sing joy to the world every Christmas, we are reminded that Jesus comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He doesn't just patch it up a bit. If you see me do a little bit of work around the house, you know I do not restore it to original condition. That is not my skill set. Jesus actually brings us to better than the original condition. If you stay for adult Sunday school, we'll talk about that just a little bit today. Now, quite obviously, our full experience of these blessings is still in the future. In fact, all of those whom Jesus healed would eventually get sick again and they would eventually die, right? This is a sign that he's doing. It's not the full reality. At Christ's return, all the dead shall be raised and those in Christ shall enter into everlasting life in the new creation and never again be susceptible to any bodily affliction. And because Jesus is bringing God's future reign into the present, His ministry contains signs that he is fully reversing the consequences of humanity's rebellion against God, even if those signs aren't going to come to full fruition until the age to come. Uh, Jeffrey Gibbs, once again, puts it really beautifully. He writes this, Jesus' healing miracles point to the final restoration. They are not merely parables that stand for the forgiveness of sins, They are miracles in which the Son of God drove back the power of Satan's sin and sickness for the people of the land. That's good. Yet I want to add something that I think is critical. They are not simply signs of what God is going to do for you. They are signs of the Messiah himself. That's the title I gave to this sermon. These are signs that point to the fact of who Jesus is. God come in the flesh with all authority over all the powers of darkness, over everything that has gone wrong in this world, and over sin itself. These are signs of the Messiah which make clear that Christ is the one whom the prophets had foretold, and that he comes with the absolute power to conquer Satan's sin and death on behalf of his people. See, Jesus advances his kingdom by discipling God's people, and Jesus advances God's kingdom by reversing the curse of Adam's fall. We know, of course, that God's plan is not simply to advance the kingdom qualitatively, though. It's not like the people of God are in a fish tank and God doesn't care about the people out there. He's just making us healthier in here. God's plan is to gather a vast multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and language who will worship Jesus Christ to the glory of his Father forever. And so Jesus advances God's kingdom in this way, by sending the message out. Look at verse 24 with me. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, 
those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Of course, we see elsewhere in the passage, this isn't just Syria, unless you take Syria to be the whole land, which some scholars do. It's across the sea. It's in Decapolis. It's up north. It's down south in Jerusalem. It's spread widely. Now, the ESV here says his fame spread throughout all Syria. That is an excellent translation. And yet, I don't want you to miss something that is both obvious but actually quite important. Fame here simply means the report about him. I mean, that's what fame is. You know, it's a good report, a remarkable report about someone that's going around. I think that's helpful to remember because it says the gospel is getting spread because the good news about Jesus is being spread. A report about Jesus is the gospel, right? I think that's actually very helpful for us to keep in mind. I'll say more about that in just a moment. First, I want to raise an objection. Someone might object. Sure, there was a report going out far and wide about Jesus. Uh, Our Lord's fame was being spread all over the promised land and even beyond its ancient borders. But wasn't the message kind of mumbled up? Not very clear. A bit confusing. Muddled. See, people were coming to Jesus to be healed, but they weren't coming to worship him as their God. In fact, wasn't there a great deal of debate, even in the crowds, crowds that followed him, over whether or not Jesus was the Messiah? Well, yes, there was. And I asked, so what? I want you to actually see this is good news. Jesus is using the very imperfect message that is going out in order to call people, eventually, to saving faith. I hope that encourages you. Let me bring that up to date. Um, I'm looking out here, maybe not all of you, but many of you. I am looking out on a really fine group of confessionally reformed Protestant Christians. And as I do that, I'm looking at people, some of whom who first heard the gospel from an Arminian, a charismatic, uh, a Roman Catholic priest. In fact, some of you may have first heard the good news about Jesus from someone who wasn't even born again. See, God uses all that. That is part of God's plan. I think that should liberate you as you share the gospel. Now, we rightly take great care to get the word of God right, how it's translated, how it's taught. We want to understand the whole counsel of God's word. That's all right. But, beloved, please don't become paralyzed by analyzing all that and thinking the goal is simply that we keep getting it right so that you never actually tell people about Jesus. All you need to do to do evangelism is tell people something about the biblical Jesus and trust that God will use that. You don't need to finish the conversation with an altar call. You don't need to be able to answer all or even most of their questions. All you need to do is tell people something about Jesus, and that is spreading the gospel. Because a report about Jesus Christ is the gospel. Let me say this again, because I do think this should be encouraging to you. Jesus was using this very imperfect news about who he is to draw people to himself. 
Now, I want you to remember, he's still doing that today. Also, by the way, it means you should not be over when you see someone else doing it less than perfectly, right? God has not called us to critique our brothers and sisters, even as he has called us to be faithful ourselves. Beloved, Jesus Christ is building his church. The thing to remember about this is, yes, we are called to get it right. Yes, we are called to be faithful, but it does not depend on him who runs. It depends upon him who calls. And Jesus Christ is building his church with imperfect messengers who sometimes muddle up the message, but there's still enough truth there that he's going to use it. Jesus is advancing God's kingdom by discipling God's people. Jesus is advancing God's kingdom by reversing the curse of Adam's sin and fall. And Jesus is advancing God's kingdom by sending the message out. This leads naturally to the fact that Jesus is advancing God's kingdom by drawing the people in. Look at verse 25 with me. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Uh, The description of the territory suggests that people were coming from all over Israel, except for one place. wonder if something stood out for you. There's one place that's not mentioned in all of Israel where people were coming from, and that's Samaria. Which in one sense could be surprising, because we're told in John, as Jesus was going up to Galilee, where this ministry gets started, he had a very fruitful mission among the Samaritan people. Um, Such great crowds came out among the Samaritans that urged Jesus to stay with him, And then they boldly declare that we now know this is the Savior of the world. And yet we do not see Samaritans following Jesus around in his itinerant ministry. I think the reason for that is probably just the animosity between Jews and Samaritans made it totally untenable for Samaritans to be wandering around in Galilee among the Jews. They would not have received the hospitality they would have needed simply to get by with their day-to-day work. It also perhaps reminds us that though Jesus does minister to the Gentiles and to the Samaritans, we see those things, he primarily came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, something that he himself emphatically states. That's the negative side of the equation, no Samaritans. But Matthew was drawing our attention to the positive. Not only did crowds follow Jesus, Matthew says, Great crowds were following Jesus. Great crowds. And they were from the entire land of Israel and even beyond, excepting only Samaria. As R.T. France points out, in view of the various sources of opposition to Jesus, which we shall encounter in chapters 11 through 16, even including the Galilean communities of Nazareth, of Chorazin, of Bethsaida, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, remember Capernaum is his home base, it is important for Matthew's readers to keep in mind this overall impression of general enthusiasm for Jesus' Galilean ministry. That is, Matthew has put this enthusiasm up front so that we're going to read this later hostility in light of the fact that vast crowds actually came out and were treating him as a prophet from God. 
and perhaps something even more. The fact that Jesus draws people to himself is of utmost importance. It reveals the astonishing magnetism of Jesus' own person and his works and his teaching. But it also reveals a critical aspect of our Lord's plan for his people. I want to slow down on this because I want you to realize this was true then. It's also true now. Jesus' plan for his people is he is not providing us with a consumer product that we can all comfortably enjoy in the privacy of our own homes that will make our spiritual lives better. Jesus' plan for advancing the kingdom of God involves calling people to himself so that individually and corporately as the people of God, we will reorganize our lives around his own person. Beloved, you cannot be a lone ranger for Jesus. God calls us into a community, a community that finds him at the center. We are called to gather around his own person. That is, Jesus advances God's kingdom by drawing people to himself. So there you have it. Jesus is advancing God's kingdom by discipling God's people. Jesus is advancing God's kingdom by reversing the curse of Adam's sin and fall. Jesus is advancing God's kingdom by sending the message out, and Jesus is advancing God's kingdom by drawing the people in. And astonishingly, Jesus has chosen to include us in this task. He doesn't need us, but he has invited us to be part of his mission. Invite's actually a little too weak of a term. It is an invitation because it's so gracious, but Jesus has called and commanded us to take part in this mission This news is too good to keep to ourselves. So we study and we teach. We send missionaries out and we pray. And since we cry out to a God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above everything that we ask or could even imagine, we have no idea what God is going to do next. What extraordinary thing God is going to do the very next time we pray Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about that and commit yourself to praying for that. Amen.